0: You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on.
1: This episode deals with sexual assault and abuse. Listener discretion is advised.
0: It's 1983 and a 15-year-old boy named Richard Kelvin is in a laneway in North Adelaide. He's 50 metres from his beautiful family home. He has spent that Sunday, June the 5th, playing footy until the afternoon when his best friend Carl came over. They kicked the footy around some more, Richard called his girlfriend and then he walked Carl back to the bus stop. It's 6.15pm and the sun is disappearing. He says to Carl that he doesn't want to walk back alone. There are surrounding parklands and he jokes, I might get mugged or something. Richard is as aware of any other child in Adelaide that the streets aren't safe at night. Over the last four years, boys have been murdered. Richard attempts to run home. He wants to call his girlfriend. He wants to be back in time for dinner. But then a sound echoes throughout the neighbourhood. Multiple people hear it. The suburb is otherwise quiet, and then there's a loud cry as though for help followed by the screeching of car tyres. Richard is not the first boy to go missing, but he is the most high profile. His father is a famous news presenter named Rob Kelvin. But first, the video images... It will be six weeks and one day before Richard's body is found. For most of that time, he was alive. It's a tragedy of unimaginable scale. He is the fifth murder victim that we know of, ranging in age from 14 to 25. The people responsible were capable of cruelty beyond what any of us could imagine. And according to some, they belonged to a much larger network, targeting potentially hundreds of innocent victims. I'm Jessie Stevens, and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia! podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Walkley award-winning journalist Debbie Marshall. Debbie has a special interest in Australian true crime stories and has written eight books about a number of cases around the country, including the Claremont and Snowtown serial killings. Her latest release, Banquet, tells the untold story of Adelaide's family murders. In the late 1970s, two males were killed. One was 17-year-old Alan Arthur Barnes and the second was 25-year-old Neil Frederick Muir. What do we know about what happened to them?
1: Well, they were the first known victims of the so-called family murders in Adelaide. So Alan Barnes was the first victim. He was, we believe killed on his seventeenth birthday. He was picked up whilst he was hitchhiking, held for a week. The most appalling obscenities uh, visited upon him. Physically, he was sexually tortured. We know that there was you know more than one person there, and they found his body later under a bridge. Neil Muir was the second victim. He was 25. He was from a a lovely family, but he'd become a bit of a drifter and a heroin addict, but he was trying to get off the gear. He was trying to straighten his life out, but, you know, he wasn't travelling really well. He disappeared in 79. His body was found in two garbage bags chopped into little pieces the following day. Nobody has been convicted for either Alan Barnes's murder or Neil Muir's, but that was just the beginning of what is known as the family murders.
0: Were those two cases tied together at the time? Did they have such similarities that police thought, okay, these are perpetrated by the same group of people? Yes, it does. And one of the
1: clear indicators was the sexual torture that was visited on these men and, as you see, as we go through, you know, the further murders that happened in the 80s as well.
0: Can you describe a little bit about what Adelaide was like in the 1970s, a sort of backdrop of these cases?
1: So Adelaide in the 70s was under the premiership of the very controversial, very colourful, now known, very gay, Don Dunstan. He hadn't come out then. He was married. His second wife actually died very young of cancer. But before he died, he was living with a young man. But what happened under him, because he was a gay man, he wanted to liberalise South Australia, bring it out of its fusty, musty, (laughs) mothballed, State and bring it kicking and screaming into the 1970s, which he did in an incredible way. He had some amazing reforms, and one of them was to legalize homosexuality. As much as that was a wonderful thing, parts of society that were human vermin came out of the woodwork, and they were in some way sort of protected under that liberalization. And it's part of that, you know, the pedophilia and the sexual abuse of young men that we later see in the family murders.
0: Into the early 1980s, there were two more victims, a 14-year-old and an 18-year-old. Were their murders connected to those previously in the late 1970s? Was there a similar pattern emerging here?
1: Yes, there was, absolutely, with the picking up. So the pattern was that boys were abducted, apart from Alan Barnes, who we know to be hitching. We don't know what Neil Muir was doing. They were abducted. They were drugged the same drugs were found in the boys system and we're talking heavy hitting drugs here mandrax which was not even legal by then and that was used in in the war you know for people who were shell shocked so that they would try to wipe out the memories of how ghastly it was being at the front so this was the drug that was used to knock out these poor boys then they were held captive and the Coterie of Creeps, as I call them, who orbited around Bevan Spencer von Einem, who was a benign-looking bookkeeper. He couldn't quite cut it as an accountant. Lived at home with mummy, you know, to the outside world during the day. He was a very straight, conservative man who loved his mother, went to Tupperware parties, musical shows, etc. At night, he crawled the beats around Adelaide, which pivoted along the Torrens River, and he would find his victims. He picked them off in his headlights, and we know that there were something like 200 young men who were drugged and sexually assaulted and let go. Von Island was the only person convicted of the family murders, so four of them shamefully remain unsolved, and we also know that he did not work alone.
0: How did police know that? That he didn't work alone? What evidence was there that there were multiple men involved? Well, we know that von Eynhem, and I know this firsthand
1: because I spoke to one of Von Arnhem's former friends, a guy called Lewis Turter, who I chased to Sydney. Lewis Turter himself told me what von Arnhem would do, that the boys would be brought to his house. He was a drag queen by his own admission. And there were other people there who were transitioning, men transitioning to women. And these boys were sexually abused and let go in the morning. So they formed part of that 200. And we know that this is the same MO that happened with the boys and the family murders and that Boninam was responsible for that.
0: Why were they called the family?
1: Trevor Kipling, who headed the family murders investigation, went on a commercial television show and said, you know, they behaved like one big happy family. It's a misnomer. They weren't family. They were just a bunch of absolutely depraved sexual deviants who got their kicks from abducting, drugging, sexually torturing and then ultimately killing young men. I mean, I think it's really important that we remember And we always remember that at this juncture, we're talking decades later, four of these murders that we know of and I'm not convinced that four is the number. Hmm. I'm sure, and I've spoken to so many people since the book came out, there may well be more murders because, you know, let's face it, there were street kids there, there were boys coming out of boys' homes, there were the great unloved boys that nobody cared about, nobody reported missing. So we just don't know really what that number is. What we do know is that Bon Arnhem and his coterie trawled that city for young flesh and they found them.
0: You were saying that those four men and boys that were killed no one has been convicted for their murders. The fifth was Richard Dallas Kelvin. He was 15 and he was murdered in 1983. It was different for him. How did police find out what had happened to him?
1: Well, it was different in so far only that this time they made a terrible mistake. They targeted the son of an extremely popular much-loved celebrity newsreader, Richard Kelvin's father. So when he disappeared, and let me just brief you very quickly on what happened. He was with his little friend Carl, his best mate. It was a Sunday afternoon. They'd been kicking the footy around. Richard Kelvin lived with his parents in North Adelaide in a very salubrious area, a beautiful house. They had a loving, loving family. Mum said, don't be late for tea. And he walked his mate Carl to the bus stop and he was snatched. He was held for five weeks. Mm. If you can imagine, so the whole city, the whole of South Australia held its breath during that time. They'd had other murders there. They'd had the Beaumont children who were still missing to this day. They had the two young, lovely girls who were taken from the Adelaide Oval, still missing to this day. Adelaide was no stranger to serial murder, but this was off the scale In its intensity, these were young men who were just snatched from the streets and taken to be used as sexual playthings for these very, very debauched men, which is why I called the book Banquet. I said, you know, it was like they were at a medieval feast. Mm. It was a feasting on young flesh. And also that poet Robert Louis Stevenson said, everyone sooner or later sits down to a banquet of consequences. And when I spoke to Louis Turter, I told him that. I said, everyone sooner or later, Lewis, sits down to a banquet of consequences. And he looked at me and said, well, Debbie, I guess this is my banquet. It's time to serve all of them their banquet. They have got away with this for decades. There are suppression orders sitting around the names of some of the people who may be involved, who may know more. My work on this is not ended. It's just starting. It is absolutely just starting. The response I've had from the public has been absolutely overwhelming. People love to help. People love to be an armchair detective, and and I love that they do that. So a lot of the things, the questions I ask in the book are now being answered, which is fantastic. So... What I need, what I want is for someone, a lawyer, to contact me, to go pro bono, to get these suppression orders lifted. There is no reason for them to be sitting around these names anymore. We should not be protecting people who may be guilty.
0: Absolutely. The suppression orders are really interesting because when you started investigating this, you discovered that they had been put in place seemingly to protect alleged perpetrators. It's unclear why else they would be in place. What did you discover about them?
1: Well, They were put in place, yes, to protect the reputations of possible perpetrators, but also to protect the integrity of the trial so that they weren't tainted. But at this juncture, in nearly 2022, with not a charge within Kui on any of them. Can someone please explain to me why, for example, Lewis Turter, why the police have not revisited that when he's admitted to the sexual abuse of young men? I mean, there are not victims that are coming forward possibly, but he's admitted to it anyway. And these men were incapable of giving consent because they were drugged to the eyeballs. They had to be carried into the house.
0: How did the death of Richard? How was that linked to Bevan Spencer von Einem? How did his name come up for detectives?
1: Well, his name had been given to the police actually some years prior by somebody who was knocking around with him at that time for want of a better expression. And so that, you know they were looking at him and then they you know, closed the net on him and he said that he had an alibi which had more holes than a fisherman's net and Then he changed his alibi and said, oh, well, actually, he was in my house on that Sunday night, but I didn't want to say that because mm. I didn't want my mother upset. His mother since died. So they charged him with Richard Kelvin's murder. Many years later, in 1988, they charged him with the murder of Alan Barnes and another boy called Mark Langley, who was snatched from down near the river when he just had a bit of a blue with his mate and got out of the car and walked off and was never seen again. His body was found same way the others were. But the thing about Von Einem was he never gave up anybody. Mm. We always thought, well, maybe when his mum dies, he'll talk, but he didn't. And when I got to meet him in prison, I went in twice, and I'm the only person who's been in there, you know, outside family members, and even they hadn't been in there for years, for decades. And I found a charming, psychopathic, sly Ghastly individual who wanted to convince me that it was actually Richard Kelvin's fault. My first reaction was I wanted to weep for his victim, and God knows I cried buckets when I was doing that book. And my second was I wanted to slap him. And I came away thinking, why can't they break him down? What are we doing wrong in this society that people like him sitting there get three square meals a day and we can't break him down?
0: Yeah, he must have a lot of, he has all the information. Do you think that he was the leader or do you think that he was part of this family but not necessarily an orchestrator?
1: Look, I know from talking to people like Lewis Turter that Von Einem fabricating his life story, he's re-narrated, you know, the truth. I don't think he had the bottle to be the ringleader. There was a ringleader, clearly. I don't think it was him. I think at the end of the day, he probably led the charge and the hunting party. You know, he certainly acted out his vivid, filthy fantasies. But was he there at the end of the coup de grace? I don't know.
0: What do we know about his upbringing and his backstory? Do we have any sense of his childhood or what led him to these sorts of crimes?
1: So we know that his mother, Thora, who he absolutely adored, she was a lovely woman by all accounts, a church-going woman. Bevan was part of a family of four. They lived in suburban Adelaide within radius of the River Torrens, which was his hunting ground, his playground, and where the beat started, the famous number one beat where all the gay men used to go to hook up. His father, however, was a different kettle of fish. He was a German man, very stern, very authoritarian, And by an account that I believe, including Bevan's, he, you know, was brutal to not just mum, but to the kids as well, you know, would thrash them with sticks that he'd get from the tree out the back, stinging nettle and whatever. Maybe it was that. I don't know whether I believe that they're born that way, but I certainly think that the nurturing process plays a massive part. He claims he was raped by his dad's friend at the age of seven. Well, It's a very tender age. Mm. It's the age of reasoning. And if that happened, most certainly would have impacted his warped thinking. He says later that he was raped and he went through the car window in a car accident. Well, that would affect his frontal lobe possibly and his reasoning and his thinking. But none of it explains why this man was so, so wickedly debauched. If we think, for example, about Ivan Milat, Mm. who, again, went to his grave, you know, keeping his filthy secrets. These people love their power, and particularly, you know, when it comes to sex. Ivan Malat, in anyone's language, was a shocking, shocking human being. But in some ways, this story haunts me more Yeah. because those boys were held. You know, they were held victim for so long. The youngest boy was 14 years old. And astonishingly, when I was just past deadline for the book, I got an email from a pastor in Adelaide and said, Peter Stogniff's mum wants to meet you. Well, I couldn't find her. I couldn't find the family. I thought, she maybe they've died. They'd actually sort of just gone undercover from the media for years. And she'd heard about me and the work I do, and so they flew me to Adelaide that next morning and she was telling me this terrible story where a friend of hers said to her, you know, a year or so after Peter's disappearance, because they didn't find his body for a year, and she never believed even then that it was him because it had been very badly burnt accidentally by a farmer who was burning off his crops. And this friend had said to her, you know, Lydia, you need to move on now. You need to get a life. And she said, I would like to do that if I had a life, but I don't anymore. There is no life without Peter.
0: You can't imagine that level of grief.
1: No, and one of the things she wanted me to do was to find somebody through my work who would help her exhume the body. She said, I need proof. Give me proof that it's Peter. And, you know, Jesse, when you're dealing with victims' families like this, when you come away from these people, you carry so much of them with you. They never leave me. They wake me at night. They wake me in the morning. And... I'm determined to do what I can, but I can't do it alone. I need help.
0: I can't imagine the weight of that responsibility as well, which is what these sorts of investigations are about, is trying to seek justice for the most vulnerable in our community who were not only murdered, as you say, but were tortured for a really long period of time. It is just a type of crime you cannot imagine.
1: You can't fathom it. No. It is unfathomable. And, you know, all of the victims' families, Neil Muir's daughter spoke to me for the podcast for the first time. She'd never spoken to a journalist and it was cathartic for her. But she said, Debbie, you know, people paint Neil as a heroin addict and a drifter and a loser and a nobody. But He wasn't a nobody. He was my father. Yeah. And it's just...
0: The side you don't often hear.
1: No, and I think, you know, and I think it's really important and I say this all the time. You know, I've been doing this work for decades and it doesn't get any easier, it doesn't get any better. But in terms of the trauma that I go through, you know, listening to the stories, I see so much of it these days where true crime is told as a form of entertainment.
0: Yeah, it's not victim-centred, whereas your work I find is incredibly centred on victims, which is where it ought to be with a lens of empathy guiding it, rather than salaciousness or, Mm. you know, details that, people find shocking i mean these are ultimately the most human stories and there's real purpose in your work
1: well thank you look i wrote the book called killing for pleasure which was based on the snowtown serial killings the bodies in the barrel and that was a different side of adelaide that i was working with then that was you know the side that people don't really want to go to you know they don't have the big festival lights there and they don't have the music scene and the the mm-hmm. big restaurants and the you know, the flash cars, they just live out there in a pretty ordinary fashion, a lot of them. They're, a lot of them, most of them are very, very decent people. Yeah. But, you know, that impacted those communities so much that people turned away. They turned away from the media glare. They didn't want to know. And the amount of publicity it got and the amount of books, you know, coming off the press left, right and centre about the story, and I remember thinking who's thinking about the victims and their families here?
0: Mm, They were very much marginalised in that story. I
1: really think they were. So when I shone the torchlight on this side of Adelaide, the flashy Adelaide, you know, the Adelaide of Don Dunstan's era where, you know, parties were everywhere, darling, and so, you know, the music was played in the salons and poetry readings in the park and the judiciary, and I was looking at big government and looking at all of it. And then I was looking also at what was happening underneath, the pedophilia, you know, the cover-ups. And I have to say, I haven't even touched
0: the surface yet. Yeah.
1: The amount of information I've got coming in is extraordinary.
0: It seems far bigger than anyone might have assumed it at the time and that's certainly coming out. And I wanted to return to Lewis Turter, who you mentioned, who you spoke to. When you spoke to him, what did he tell you about what he Witnessed at the time?
1: And not just witnessed, was actually a party to. Von Arnhem turning up to three in the morning looking for a place to put the boys because remember he lived with his mother so he couldn't take them home, had to have a landing pad for them. So Lewis Turter lived with some transvestite friends or men who were transitioning successfully or otherwise. He lived with an alcoholic. So, you know, there were a few of them in rundown, dilapidated Adelaide accommodation rentals. And Van Arnhem would turn up in the middle of the night and in would come these boys who were dragged in, carried in. What happened, Lewis? Oh, well, you know, I don't know. I went to bed. Oh, come on, Lewis. What happened, Lewis? And so bit by bit, bit by bit, he admitted it, that, well, they were drugged and, uh, yes, you know, I had sex with some of them. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. But, you know, they always gave consent. I said, how could they give consent?
0: And how... Has he not been charged if he is confessing to that sort of involvement?
1: Well, my understanding is, and I'm not a lawyer, is that, you know, you've got to have victims. So maybe they haven't found the victims who are prepared to come forward. It was actually the work of one very, very clever scientist, a very excitable Italian who I spoke to for the book. He was looking and getting things on a database when, you know, this was going on and the druggings, when the murders were happening. And he suddenly realised that actually we've got a match here. These drugs that are coming up in in the murder victims, I've seen that drug before in one of the drugged boys who was not a murder victim who went to police. And so that's actually when things really started to gear up, that the police then went to look for who had access to those drugs So they did a marvellous job, actually, and very tedious. They went through all the pharmacy, you know, the yellowing Mm. (laughs) bits of paper with the name of the drug and the name of the person who accessed it and the doctor who had given them the drugs. And up came the name, Bevan Spencer von Arnhem. Mm. And they went, oh, bingo, we've heard this name before.
0: So you mentioned that it was matching sort of other victims who had come forward and who hadn't been killed, who had survived that ordeal. Do we have any sense of how many of them there were that might have fallen victim to this sort of torture?
1: About 200.
0: And I would imagine that there would be a portion of those victims who wouldn't come forward to authorities from what we know about, you know, the nature of sexual assault.
1: Absolutely. And that's the problem. Richard Kelvin's little mate, Carl, is not a little boy anymore. He's not 15. He's in his 50s and he's completely broken. Absolutely haunted with survivor guilt. Why wasn't it me? Why did they get Richard and not me? But he did come forward, Jesse. He looked at a bit of my work and he came forward and he spoke to me and he's a different man now because he said, you know, he's getting some psychological help for a start, some counselling, because he needed it. He was Mm. burdened with grief over his best mate all these decades later. And that's what these people do. They leave behind a trail of absolute devastation utter devastation. People never, ever get over it. There is no such thing as closure. In my opinion, it does not exist. It's a nice concept that we can put people in a box and go, there you go, they've had some closure. If everyone did what Carl did and came forward, this story would be helped immensely because we could fill in the jigsaw puzzles for a start. And secondly, it's good for the victims. And if they don't come forward to me, go to someone else, go to see a counsellor, go to see a GP, whatever it takes. But I hate to think that they're burdened all these decades later because they're ashamed. This excitable Italian, for example, told me that the attitude was when these victims were going forward and they were looking at what was in their system and the attitude was, oh yeah, as if this young bloke reckons you know he's eighteen years old or he's fifteen years old, he reckons he's gone out for the night and you know he didn't get home until three days later, and uh, obviously things had been done to him sexually, and he was drugged to the eyeballs. <laughs> what a joke. It wasn't
0: a joke. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Jessie Stevens. I'm speaking with investigative journalist and Walkley award-winning author Debbie Marshall about her latest book, Banquet, the untold story of Adelaide's family murders. Do we know anything about other potential suspects? Obviously, there are those names that are suppressed. Do the victims' families have any sense of who they think might have been involved as well? Absolutely, yes. And is it someone known to the families or was it someone... Socially, that had a little bit of currency?
1: No, Jesse, these were random opportunistic attacks. Mm. Think a hunting party. You're out in the car, and some of the people who may be involved, whose names are still suppressed, they probably couldn't be seen in the car as part of the hunting party. So, as I say, were these boys delivered to them like takeaway food? Was von Arnim like an Uber driver?
0: Why is it believed that some perpetrators or some people who knew this were potentially high profile or, or did have power and clout?
1: Well, I think because Adelaide's known as the suppression city, South Australia, the suppression state, which has not done that state any favours at all because when you suppress things, you get people with conspiracy theories. So possibly it's that, but also. The stories I've had coming in, I got them through the book as well. Some of them are in the book. There were people, high-profile people. For example, there was a guy called Rick Marshall, who's now dead, who ran a thing called the Cottage Theatre. And in they went, in their droves, young men, you know, wanting to be on the stage, wanting to be actors, you know. Young men with their young dreams, and he shattered them. You know, in, in the intervals, he'd rape them, and they'd have to go back on stage. He had the ear of powerful people. Adelaide was a small town, you know. We don't have six degrees of separation. It was about two degrees of separation. Mm. And as I say, you know, it was the old thing. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's my very firm, very strong belief that these murders were not just photographed but also videoed, that it was part of this dark web before the dark web existed. I think it started, you know, back... In the 70s, and I think, you know, certainly, for example, the murder of Derrick Stevenson, which I explore a lot in the TV series, the Foxtrot series. He ended up ignominiously upside down in his own domestic freezer. Was he part of that early family? I believe that he was. He was killed just weeks before Alan Barnes was first murdered. Derrick Stevenson may have been, on all accounts, you know, quite popular, urbane, charming criminal lawyer, but. His sex parties, his drug dealing, his drug taking. His best mate was a guy called Gino Gamadella who fled with his children illegally to Italy in February 1980, having walked on a charge of being an accessory after the fact to Darren Stevenson's murder. Mm. So, you know, it's very complex. The whole story is very complex and as I said earlier, I'm on the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of people who know a lot of things and some of those people are coming forward now, which is fantastic because I need to be the keeper of their stories and I need to work out what's in those stories and then to work out what to do with them.
0: That's what I wanted to ask you finally is that you've written banquet, you've created a podcast about this story, there's a television show covering these crimes. At this point, what do you think justice would look like? What is the best outcome in terms of, you know, justice for these victims?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lovely question. Thank you for asking it. First of all, Jesse, we need a lawyer to come forward and go pro bono on this and get those suppressions lifted. There is no reason for them to be sitting around these names anymore. There is no reason in law. Once we can get those suppressions lifted and those names out there, I'm sure that these victims are going to come flooding in the door because these people work by silencing people with fear. Yeah, We're not talking people who outwardly are anything but respectable But as this former police officer said to me just before I got on this call, the last thing he said to me on the phone call was, watch your back. Some of these people are still alive. Don't underestimate them. And I said, who am I looking for? And he said, you won't look for them. They'll look for you. It's frightening. It's really frightening. But we can't have fear stop us. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to be looking at that similar fact evidence. The law of similar fact evidence has changed. You know, those drugs that were found in the in the boys' systems that they tried to get in on in the late 80s and that fell over, much to the despair of the victims' families, Barnes and Langley particularly, we need to be looking at that. We need to see whether that is prosecutable. We need to be looking now at, okay, what do we have on these other people? What do we know about these other people? Is it possible to have them charged? Mm. Because... Trevor Kipling, for example, has long retired and, you know, he deserves it. He did the best he could. He was their saviour, really. But I don't know how people can retire from this. The families can't. I can't. You know, we need to put this together now. It's time. It's time. People are dying. People are getting old. Von Einem's in the old age unit now at Port Augusta Prison, where I interviewed him.
0: That's a great point. There's people still alive. And, there are other cases where they don't discover sort of who was responsible until after they've died and justice can't be served in that case.
1: Justice is something that the victims' families are demanding now. They're not asking for it anymore. They're demanding it. They want change at the judicial level. Change these laws that protect people who may be guilty. And let's get, as a lovely lawyer in Adelaide said to me, Debbie, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Let's get the sunlight in there. It's been in the dark like a mushroom. For decades, protecting everyone. And I can tell you, Jesse, doing this work and reading thousands and thousands of pages of court documents and chasing people around the country, chasing Gino Gamadella overseas, where he put his foot in it. He told police that he was nowhere near the murder scene. He said it was a case of no car, no derence. I just kept driving. What he told me was, I parked my car and I went up to the door. I said, I'm oh, sorry, I, I thought, you told police all those years ago that you weren't there and he hung up on me. People's memories are fallible, particularly at this juncture, all these decades later, but you know, that's a good thing. It's like Lewis Turter. Why did you talk to me, Lewis? Oh, well, you know, I know you've got five suppression orders lifted, Debbie, and I was one of those names. And I thought, oh, why not? It's time, isn't it? And I said, what would you say to the other people whose names are protected by suppression? He said, I'll oh, get over it. Just come out. Come forward. It's time now.
0: Yeah, it's been so many years and yet still there is just that chance that these people can be charged and convicted and that's what I really hope comes from your work and you're exactly Mm. right, that once people see faces or hear names that are familiar to them, it might give them the courage to come forward and tell their stories. Absolutely. As I said, I've only started. I'm thinking what to do next
1: on this because I will be doing something again. It won't be another book but it'll be something.
0: Debbie Marshall is a journalist, producer for television, and author who specialises in true crime. She's written eight books that have twice been longlisted for a Walkley Award, and she won a Walkley Leadership Award in 2015. Debbie's latest book, Banquet, is a definitive expose about the family murders of Adelaide. In her investigative research for this book, Debbie interrogated the people closest to the case including the man who was charged and convicted of the crimes. You can find a link to it in our show notes. Debbie has also appeared on True Crime Conversations before to speak about the Snowtown serial killings. You can find a link to that episode in our show notes as well. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia! podcast hosted by me, Jessie Stevens, and produced by Gia Moylan. If you've enjoyed today's episode or you have a suggestion for a case you'd like us to cover, then let us know. Send us an email to truecrimeatmammamia.com.au or you can join our True Crime Conversations Facebook page. I'll be back next week with another episode. But in the meantime, if you'd like to hear more from me, you can find me on Mamma Mia Out Loud three times a week as well as Cancelled. It's a comedy podcast about who's in, who's out and who cares in the world of celebrities.